Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. On today's episode, we catch up on all the latest developments in the criminal underworlds of the Ten Thunders and the Arcanist factions. The world is changing, and new alliances have shaken the traditional power structures that have governed Malifaux. I hope you enjoy these two collections of vignettes, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by a repeat sponsor, Vignettes. You know normal Vigs, right? These are the same but smaller. They're great for high-class parties, low-down brawls and family picnics alike. Vignettes, is there anything they can't do? No. Arcanist Vignettes The death of the Governor-General presented a great opportunity for Victor Ramos. He helped to fan the flames of the chaos that followed with a number of coordinated Arcanist attacks against key guild strongholds and personnel. These attacks were bolder than any before, and often carried out in broad daylight, in direct defiance of the guild's authority. While the guild pinned the murder of the Governor-General on the Union and began rounding up its members for execution, Ramos took advantage of the situation. Protests were organized across Malifaux, and hidden printing presses worked constantly to churn out flyers and rag sheets that drew attention to just how unfair the guild's legal system was to the common citizen. Of course, Ramos always had more gears in motion than anyone could see on the surface. In addition to his political agenda, he also returned to one of his most ambitious projects, the soulstone that powered the massive Leviathan construct had been damaged in the Battle of Kythera, and despite years of trial and error, Ramos had been unable to find a soulstone powerful enough to animate the colossal machine for more than a few minutes. The survey reports, yield charts and divination summaries that had crossed his desk in the past few months, however, had given him hope. He had always dismissed the rumours of the soulstone geode as nothing more than fanciful stories, but it was hard to argue with so many data points. The next week, Ramos left on an expedition to the Ten Peaks, confident that his plans would spin out without him, and that the slumbering Leviathan would soon rise to conquer Malifaux in his name. When Ramos left on his expedition to the Ten Peaks, he left Caris in charge of the Arcanists in his stead. He gave her a false story about investigating a new leyline, but she saw through his lies and realized the true nature of his expedition. She kept that knowledge to herself, though, reasoning that it could prove useful at a later date. At first, Caris tried to follow in Ramos' footsteps keeping a low profile and engaging in hit-and-run strikes against the guild as he had instructed. 
Gradually, though, she began carrying out missions that Ramos would have considered too risky, such as burning the guild supply warehouses, assassinating troublesome officials, and terrorizing known anti-Arcanist citizens. Karis had always been a fixer. When there was a problem, she didn't hide from it or turn away, hoping that it would resolve itself in time. Instead, she threw everything at it, using her talent, training, and resources to resolve the problem in the most efficient way possible. To Anasalia Karis, the guild was a problem. Where Ramos led the Arcanists in secret, hiding behind the mask of the Union, Karis did so openly and brazenly, as if daring the guild to stop her. Her golden wings soon became a frequent sight above the city, always foretelling a new attack that was just moments away. By the end of the first month, she had become one of the most prominent and wanted arcanists in Malifaux City. Despite being the poster woman for the guild's anti-arcanist propaganda, Karis cared little for the philosophies of the arcanist movement. She was always a mercenary at heart, and while her loyalty to Ramos remained unwavering, she eagerly awaited his return to the Arcanists to give her back her freedom. Just as Ramos placed Karis in charge of the everyday workings of the Arcanists, he set Tony Ironsides up as the public face of the Union in his absence. This was not an easy transition for her. Her previous roles were breaking the legs of anyone who didn't pay their dues and hunting down rogue arcanists. She'd never been the sort to play politics or attempt to win over the hearts of others. In this sense, it made her the perfect choice to temporarily lead the Union. Her dangerous reputation kept the Union's more outspoken members in line during Ramos' absence, while her questionable popularity ensured that she would never be able to replace Ramos as its leader, should she attempt to turn on him. Ironsides gritted her teeth and accepted her new role without complaint, but she hated every minute of it. She never wanted the spotlight and detested the legal red tape that her new position necessitated. The city was plastered with posters bearing her upturned face and raised arm, but she sneered every time she passed one in the street. Only when she was personally hunting down and punishing those who caused the Union trouble did she feel free of the burdens of her position. This earned her an odd sort of respect from the members of the Union. They still loved Ramos, but it was clear from the start that Tony was willing to get her hands dirty and didn't want to hide behind lawyers and politics. Ramos had assumed that Ironside's rough demeanor and distaste for authority would prevent her from earning the love of the Union, and to an extent he was correct. He just hadn't counted on her earning their respect. Unlike Ironsides, Colette loved the spotlight, and she started seeing more and more of it after the Governor-General's death. The uncertainty that fell over the city after its leader's death resulted in waning attendance at the Star Theatre, and the Guild's roundup of union workers certainly didn't improve the situation. To help bring in more patrons, Colette took a number of measures that would have been unthinkable a year prior. Working with Angelica, she reorganized the sets and routines of her girls, 
pushing them to develop larger and more elaborate dance and song numbers that would draw in larger crowds. She also hired a handful of male showgirls to appeal to the growing population of young women in the city, which proved to be a much-needed shot in the arm for the star's attendance numbers. Behind the curtain, things were also starting to turn. Ramo's sudden and unexplained absence and Carrie's campaign of terror meant that nobody was keeping a close eye on Colette, and she used that time to slowly wiggle her way out from under the thumb of the arcanists. When Karis eventually arrived at the Star Theatre and demanded that Colette return to her smuggling duties, the showgirl insisted that she be given more control over the Arcanist's smuggling operation. Colette would still ensure that the Arcanist's soul stones would reach Earth, but she wanted to set her own schedules for the shipments. Colette's determination and business acumen impressed Karis, who agreed to her demands, on the condition that her employees remained available for other Arcanist assignments. The agreement suited them both, and over the course of subsequent meetings to discuss their arrangement, they became steady and unlikely friends. Now Colette could spend each night in the spotlight, dancing and singing to distract the masses of Malifaux City from the troubles of their lives. She had never been more content. The death of the Governor-General meant little to Marcus, who had grown into the habit of shunning the trappings of civilization. The rumours surrounding the opening of Nythera intrigued him, however, and he set off in an expedition to the Badlands to investigate the ruins for himself. What he found was a large area of the Badlands that was still covered in dense growth. He had passed through the region a year before, and was surprised to see that a barren wasteland had somehow become a flourishing forest in such a short time. Marcus set up camp in the forest, and began a vigorous study of the new growth. He catalogued countless species of new plants and animals, many of which he had only seen as fossils and are believed to be extinct. As Marcus continued this line of thought, he realized that nearly all of the extinct species had disappeared or mutated into unrecognizable forms at the time of the Tyrant War, and that he was standing within a forest that simply should not exist. It was too much to resist. He took samples of the plants, climbed the trees and stalked the reborn animals of the forest, learning their ways and habits by becoming one of them. It did not take long for him to cross the path of the Fae, who seemed to share an affinity for this strange new forest. His expertise in tracking and survival allowed him to stay one step ahead of them, but when their paths crossed, he quickly dispatched the wretched creatures and returned to his research. Marcus knew, however, that it was only a matter of time before he crossed paths with their terrible undead queen, and he looked forward to that day with anticipation. What stories would she tell him once he had proven his dominance? December whispered to Rasputina of the dangers of Nythera and what lay sleeping there. When she learned that the Freikorps were leading an expedition to unleash the Autumn Queen imprisoned within, she quickly set off to stop them. Although she fought fiercely, even encasing von Schill in ice, she was still unable to stop the opening of Nythera and the release of the terrible entity within. 
retreating from the woman who had shattered December's mortal form. She returned to the Ten Peaks, the seat of her and December's power, to decide how to handle the Queen's return. In the howling mountain winds, Rasputina heard December's voice calling out to her again. But this time, his typical demands and threats were replaced with a thoroughly uncharacteristic tone of deference and respect. He claimed that Titania would destroy them both, and that if Rasputina would agree to stop her, he would give her complete control over his powers. She was skeptical of such a one-sided agreement, but she had felt the power of the Autumn Queen herself, and knew that December was not exaggerating her potential for destruction. After a moment's hesitation, she agreed to his deal, and power the likes of which she had never thought possible poured into her body, a waterfall of etheric power where before there'd only been a slow trickle. In the weeks following, the cult of December began raiding the northern hills more frequently, snatching up miners and their families to sacrifice in obscene rituals meant to concentrate December's power. Some of the people captured in these raids, those who were strong, hardy, and ruthless, were allowed to live, so long as they swore fealty to December. Eventually, Kerr sent messengers northward to warn Rasputina that such hostility will not be tolerated, and all those sent have gone missing. She killed and ate every one. Rasputina's power has increased with each passing day, and in the shadows of her soul, December watches her grow stronger with eager anticipation. Ten Thunders Vignettes Due to the wounds she suffered during her battle with the Governor-General, Mei Feng was not conscious for his death. Instead, she slept fitfully, mumbling under her breath as her face scrunched up in frustration and fear. Through it all, her saviour-turned-babysitter, English Ivan, was at her side, copying down every sound she made into his battered leather journal. Whenever her sleep became more peaceful, he would retire to the safe house's small wooden table, open his Chinese-English dictionary, and attempt to piece together her ravings into something intelligible. It soon became clear that Mei Feng was serving masters beyond the Arcanists, and with each page Ivan filled in his journal, the identities of those masters became more and more clear. When Mei Feng finally regained consciousness, Ivan lied to her, claiming that he was one of the workers in her mob and that he had saved her after her encounter with the governor. Given that she was still alive and not in prison, she had little reason to doubt him. Mei Feng was determined to return to the foundry and her people, but Ivan convinced her that she was still weak and needed to rest. Over the next few days, they talked frequently, as Ivan helped change her bandages, becoming close, and, once Mei Feng was feeling like her old self, far closer still. It wasn't anything approaching romance, but it was a connection nevertheless, and when they finally returned to the civilized parts of the city, the two parted with fond looks and a promise to speak again soon. Once Mei Feng had gone, Ivan slinked off to inform Dr. Ramos that the plan had succeeded. He had made his first steps toward infiltrating the Ten Thunders.
Chen Long threw back his head and screamed as the ethereal entity that called itself the dragon burst forth from its mortal shell, splattering meat and bone in every direction. The twisting, sinuous creature glowed with all the radiance of the sun as it floated above the temple, reveling in its freedom. Chen Long felt himself burning away within the heart of the dragon, his soul consumed like kindling before the inferno. And then, as soon as the change had come over him, the dragon was shrieking in pain, twisting back in on itself as its essence was torn apart and ground into several knots of power. In a last desperate act of self-preservation, the dragon subsumed its essence back within its mortal host, burying everything that it was deep within the newly reformed monk. In the weeks that followed the failed ascension of the Governor-General, Chen Long became reacquainted with the sensation of being alone. The tyrant within him was still recovering from its wounds, and for the first time in decades, Chen Long's thoughts were wholly his own. A lesser man might have indulged in his freedom. For Chen Long, the respite was an opportunity for self-reflection. He had mastered the styles of the Four Temples and the essences of control and plurality. But in his union with the dragon, he had neglected to study the other essences and their chakras. He had been foolish. Now Shenlong meditated upon the essence of rejection, reflecting upon the scrolls of the temples to learn how to balance the dragon's essence with his own, how to reconcile separation and unity. The dragon stirred within him, restless, but Shenlong knew that if he wanted to survive another manifestation of its power, he would have to become the stronger of their two worlds. When the Ten Thunders first asked Lynch to find out whether any of his patrons knew anything about Nythera, he flashed his usual smile and promised them that he would get right on it. This was especially difficult to do with the voice of the hungering darkness hammering inside his skull, demanding that he not tell them anything. After the Ten Thunders' representatives had left, Lynch tossed back a few stiff drinks and listened as the hungering darkness explained that Nythera was the prison that held the greatest enemy of the tyrants, and that while the entity inside it could certainly help the Ten Thunders in their goal of defeating the tyrants, he was just as likely to turn on them and eradicate all life in Malifaux. Lynch wasn't too keen on that happening. He lived in Malifaux after all. So it didn't take much convincing on the part of the hungering darkness to get him to investigate the rumors of Nythera. What he found sent a chill up his spine. Not only had the Freikorps learned the location of the ruins, but they had left the city with the intention of claiming the weapon at the heart of the ruins as their own. Being the brave man that he was, Lynch promptly sent his assistant, Mr. Graves, to warn Lilith about the Freikorps, in the hopes that she could prevent them from ever reaching Nythera. It didn't work. Nythera opened releasing Titania back into the world and prompting the hungering darkness to withdraw a portion of its power from Lynch, lest she sense its presence. It wasn't a tyrant, but it doubted that Titania would care too terribly much about the distinction. The hungering darkness' strength was its brilliance, and to help it quietly build up that strength, 
Lynch began using his wealth to buy up small taverns all across the city. None of them could compare to the honeypot, of course, but by the end of the month, all of them were carrying liquor that was tainted with the hungering darkness's corrupting essence. When Nicodem's undead pushed westward across the city, the guild found itself unable to mount a proper response. Masaki watched the battle from the rooftops of the little kingdom. The undead had little in the way of strategy, but sheer numbers were on their side. By all accounts, it seemed as if the shuffling corpses would succeed in pushing the guild back to the industrial zone, and perhaps out of Malifaux entirely. It was not a difficult decision for her to make. She was content to allow her enemies to spill each other's blood in the streets, as any weakness on their part only made the Ten Thunders stronger. But she could not allow the city to fall into the hands of a resurrectionist overlord who could not be predicted and exploited in the same manner as the guild. Leading a strike team of Torakaji and snipers, Mazaki struck against the southern flank of the undead, cutting down zombies like wheat before a scythe. As the southern flank collapsed, Mizaki and her forces withdrew, allowing the guild to assume that they had routed the undead on their own. There was no reason to allow them to learn the true strength of the Ten Thunders, and if a victory against the undead left them confident about their martial strength, then it was a weakness she could exploit in the future. When she returned to the Little Kingdom, her father, the Oyabun, was waiting for her. He chastised his daughter for acting on her impulses without consulting him first, claiming that it put the Ten Thunders at risk. When she tried to explain her actions, he backhanded Mizaki across the face, knocking her to the ground. He was seeking obedience, he claimed, not excuses. That night, Mizaki took up her besento and disappeared into the night. It had become impossible for her to ignore the threat her father's willful ignorance posed to the Ten Thunders, and if she was to have any hope of cutting the sickness from her clan and finding her own path, she would need allies with sharp knives and steady hands. The Governor-General was dead, and in a very real way, it had been Lucas McCabe's fault. He wasn't a man for bragging, but after the spasms of transformation triggered by the Governor's death had passed, he finally allowed himself to breathe a sigh of relief. It was over. He had been reporting back to the Ten Thunders for years, keeping them abreast of the artifacts the Governor sent him to retrieve. It had taken them two years to work out what the governor was planning, and another year to figure out a way to sabotage his efforts. He had heard rumours that the hungering darkness had been involved with the latter effort, but the exact details were never made available to him. In the end, his part in the plan had been relatively easy. The governor had sent him into the quarantine zone to retrieve a collection of hand bones from a resurrectionist's lair, and while McCabe had given him bones... They weren't the ones from the Resurrectionist's lair. Having to keep a straight face as he lied to the governor hadn't been easy, 
and when McCabe saw him stuttering and jerking as he floated in the mansion's hallway, he had been certain that the governor would notice the deception instantly. He hadn't, however, and when the governor attempted to anchor himself to the bones of a tyrant's mortal form, the resulting overload of etheric power had ended him. Unfortunately, McCabe's tie to the guild went up in flames along with the governor. Over the next few weeks he took whatever jobs he could, endeavouring to remain useful until the new governor-general arrived in Malifaux. Men in power always needed someone to do their dirty work off the books, and McCabe had a feeling that Franco Marlowe wouldn't be any different. The destruction of the would-be tyrant took a concerted effort from the Ten Thunders, years of careful planning and manoeuvring, and when it was finally finished, Yan Lo returned to the Oyabun to collect his reward. He did not kneel to the brutish man, but neither did Baojun Katanaka bend his knee to Yan Lo. The Oyabun had promised to tell Yan Lo what he knew of his history once the governor had been undone, and now he made good on his promise. Many centuries earlier, Yan Lo had summoned a mighty Oni named Ling Zuzi that terrorized China before being banished by seven sages. The sages then turned their attentions to Yan Lo, cursing him for his actions. Yan Lo returned to the spirit world with this knowledge, mulling it over in his mind. The longer he thought about the Oni, the more memories returned to him but he still could not determine how he had summoned such a powerful Oni or for what purpose. Placing his feet on the path of spirit, he followed it into the realm beyond, torturing the lesser Oni he came across, for information about where he might find Lingzuzi. The screaming Oni told a different story than that of the Oyabun. In their version of the tale, Lingzuzi had not been banished, but rather had possessed the sages that sought to banish it, and turned against its master, destroying his spirit with a terrible curse. When the breach first opened, the possessed sages, who had survived for centuries thanks to the Oni's influence, crossed over to Malifaux, granting Lingzuzi a physical form. Stepping back upon the path of bone, Yan Lo began the long journey back to Malifaux. He had an Oni to track down, and a great many questions to ask before he settled their score whatever that might be. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.